Hello everybody, and welcome to the third ever episode of Stat Dose of EDU. My name's Christian. And I'm Wai Chung. And we are final year medical students leading you through another fascinating medical case. Now, as a disclaimer, the Stat Dose of EDU podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely our own and do not reflect those of our affiliated institutions. This week, we wanted to try something different by getting a perspective from our primary care colleagues. Now let's get straight into that case. John is a 58-year-old male truck driver who presents to your clinic with six weeks of fatigue and generalized unwellness with discomfort in the upper abdomen. His symptoms are characterized by low energy, easy tiring, and a couple months prior, he was told by his work that unless he controls his diabetes, at the time, with an A1C of 12%, he will be unable to work as a truck driver. As a result, he controlled his diabetes by metformin and dietary changes, which resulted in his HbA1c to return to 4.3% two weeks ago. Since keeping his job, his partner reported a significant decrease in John's appetite, in addition to 5 kilograms of unintentional weight loss in the past month. John reported subjective fevers and chills at home, but no documented temperature. In the last week, John noticed his skin and eyes were developing a yellow tinge, which prompted him to visit you. His fatigue and generalized unwellness is associated with a decreased exercise tolerance and exertional shortness of breath. His abdominal discomfort, on further questioning, is localized to the left upper quadrant, which has also been going on for the same duration. He denies any infective symptoms, respiratory, urinary, or GIT, and does not have any sick contacts or recent travel. He denies any neurological symptoms, such as headache, weakness, or blurred vision. All right, let's join our expert discussant. Her name is Dr. Amber Hartley. So my name's Amber Hartley. I'm a general practitioner. Um, and I work in a health service that primarily deals with um, young people's health. There are a lot of things I like about GP. I like that I get to work with the whole lifespan, so from infancy right through to old age. Uh, I like that I can develop a relationship with my patients on an ongoing basis, and I also really like the variety. Um, No two patients are the same, and no two consults are ever the same. Thanks for that, Amber. Now, listeners... We invite you to collect your own thoughts as we move on to what Amber takes of this case. So when I first look at this case about John, um, I'm concerned he's a very unwell gentleman and there's potentially a sinister diagnosis underlying his symptoms. The symptoms that stand out primarily are the fatigue, the upper abdominal pain, the subjective fevers, unintentional weight loss, and now it appears that he's jaundiced. Um, In terms of his background, history having uh, suboptimally controlled diabetes and working in the commercial truck industry would be another issue that needs to be dealt with at some point. But I think the primary concern for me would be an underlying malignancy based initially on this stem, and that's what I'd be looking to exclude initially. Ensuring that our patients know what their reporting uh, responsibilities are to their local roads authority. Uh, So in our local area, Type 2 diabetes is a reportable medical condition and usually requires yearly medical review with a general practitioner. Um, 
And it's really just about reducing the risk to the patient and the other road users. So things like hypoglycemic episodes and screening for complications that would affect their road safety. So reduce sensitivity in their feet from peripheral neuropathy or uh, visual deficits and organ damage in the eye essentially would be the concerns there. The sudden change in his HbA1c is certainly concerning. And while some people can affect large amounts of change in their HbA1c in a short period of time, uh, to go from 12 to 4% through dietary changes and metformin alone would be suspicious of something else causing that change. The vast majority of the time, I would expect maybe one to two points in the HbA1c to change with mild to moderate dietary changes and small dose metformin in a, in a short period of time. Uh, at a HbA1c of 4.3, if he's used to having one of 12, his hypoglycemic awareness will definitely be reduced. And he may be having symptoms of sudden um, sugar changes, so often people report visual symptoms that aren't permanent, but that can be that changing glycemic status actually affecting the eyesight short term. Okay, so a really important detail in this case, which Amber has rightly focused on, is the patient's weight loss, which she found to be a significant quantity of 5 kilos in a very short time. Mm. But at the same time, it's not always the easiest thing to get a patient's weight in such a short amount of time, and also the trend of the patient's weight over a period of time. Exactly. So first of all, clearly objective measurements of weight are going to be very useful for us to quantify weight loss, but what can we do if these aren't available? Secondly, should we be weighing all of our patients in a GP setting so that we're ready in case we need to do a trend suddenly, or is it only appropriate for certain population groups? So we put that question to Amber. Trying to establish how much weight loss is unintentional can be tricky. People often don't know what their baseline weight was. Hopefully we do if he's a diabetic attending our clinic regularly, but it can be difficult to assess that. And sometimes people will report things like they've changed in dress sizes or um, that they've noticed other changes in their body rather than pure kilogram weight loss. If he's made dietary changes, it's very possible he's lost weight through those. And even metformin by itself can be uh, helpful for some people to lose weight. Uh, But five kilograms is a fairly significant weight loss in one month. And certainly more than the target would be if he was trying to lose weight loss in, oh, sorry, trying to lose weight in a healthy way. Um, if he was aiming for weight loss through dietary changes, the maximum weight loss I would normally recommend would be sort of half to one kilo per week um, for sustainable weight management. Part of it may seem strange, but to some degree, the amount of weight loss is probably less important. So I suspect in this case, if we'd reported that it had 4 kilo, 8 kilo or 12 kilo of weight loss, our suspicion for underlying problems is still going to be fairly high. So if you've established that there has been unintentional weight loss over some duration, it may not matter exactly how many kilo. It probably does matter on an ongoing basis. So I'd definitely be weighing him today uh, and establishing that trend. And the other beautiful thing about this kind of case is you're going to be seeing this gentleman again. You're not going to be solving his primary pathology today, so you will be able to quantify that a little bit more. So when he comes in to see you next week and the week after or whatever duration you're going to be seeing him again, I would weigh him again, and that may give you some more uh, indication of what's going on, as well as helping you manage his nutritional status. 
because even though we want to find out primarily what's causing this, we also want to ensure that he's not becoming um, depleted in calories and nutrients in the meantime, which I think is often a second or third or last thought when we're looking at a case like this. I do think it's a good idea to weigh people opportunistically in the clinic. And I know there's a big move away from focusing on weight as a measure of health in healthcare. And I think that's important. But it does often provide uh, a baseline of reassurance for patients. Um, one I, I typically see a lot is young women coming in for the contraceptive pill. And whilst I'm very happy to prescribe it at almost any BMI provided that it's under 40, um, it is helpful to weigh them so that at the three-month mark when they come back and they may have concerns that their weight has changed as a, as a result of the contraceptive pill, you can reweigh them and show them that actually it's not changed significantly. So this is clearly quite a concerning history of presenting complaint. So while, of course, we want to examine the patient and potentially take some more history, we're probably already starting to think about the key investigations that might reveal this patient's pathology and put them in the best possible, uh, and put them on the best possible path for their health. So the question is, what are these investigations? What are some of the considerations working in a primary care setting? And what are some of the challenges you might be faced when ordering some of these tests? Yeah, so my priority for this patient would be safety um, and establishing whether or not you think you can investigate him in the community or whether he needs to present to a hospital for admission. From the initial stem, I think it's reasonable to, to investigate him promptly in the community. And today, for this patient in my room, I would be doing bloods and organising an urgent CT abdo pelvis for him, preferably today or tomorrow. And in terms of protocoling um, the, the scan, is there like, would you want it with contrast, without contrast? Or... So really general practice point of view, I just write CT abdo pelvis on the scan <laughs> and what I'm looking for. And I usually trust my local friendly radiologist to protocol it. <laughs> I, I suspect it's usually with contrast for this yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Okay. Um, one point when requesting a scan for an outpatient is that the patient will have access to the form that you provide them. So they will read what you write on the form. So it is definitely worth telling them what you're writing on the form if you're going to write something like query pancreatic cancer on yeah. a form and then hand it to a patient. If you haven't had that discussion with the patient beforehand about what you're looking for on the scan... You may want to reframe it on the on the request um, and you may choose to write a little bit less and trust that your colleague will be able to interpret that. So you might write abdominal pain, fever, weight loss, jaundice, query. Um, or you may choose to have that discussion with the patient and say, the thing I'm most worried about is a cancer. I want us to do a scan today to try and work out if that's what's causing your symptoms. And I think that's probably the best way to go if you can have that conversation. If you do want to provide clinical information in any regard that you don't want the patient to necessarily have access to, your other option is to send it directly to the radiology provider. Um, so you could always just fax it off um, as at the same time. And what bloods would you want for this gentleman? Really basic stuff. Yeah. So a full blood count, electrolytes, liver function, and some coagulation studies would be where I would start. Let's get back to the case. 
to this patient's past medical history and social history. So John, our 53-year-old male, has a past medical history of type 2 diabetes, for which he takes metformin and has modified diet. He has hypertension, for which he takes lisinopril, 2.5 milligrams daily. He's got peptic ulcer disease, and he's on 40 milligrams of esomeprazole daily. And his past surgical history is notable for a cholecystectomy as a very remote surgical procedure. John lives at home with his partner, and he works as a truck driver. Amber, what do you think of this gentleman's past medical history and social history? Um, that sounds like a very realistic, reasonable uh, history to have recorded. Um, the, it would be interesting to know with his peptic ulcer disease if he's now experiencing any symptoms or if that's something that he's just been on the use of Eprosol for a very long time. Um, and also being aware that people on uh, PPIs plus metformin are at slightly increased risk of things like B12 deficiency. But I don't think that's going to be relevant in this acute case. In terms of optimising his medications, is there anything you'd optimise for him? Hmm, it'd be interesting to know what his metformin dose is. Um, and if his A1C was 12 most recently, if you were managing him as chronic type 2 diabetes, certainly there's a lot of scope there to escalate his therapy. Um, and... I guess looking at his hypertensive targets in the setting of diabetes, so ensuring that um, he's actually on sufficient ACE inhibitor. Thanks, Amber. One of the things we really wanted to highlight for our dear listeners is the fact that primary care physicians use this as an opportunistic way to optimize a patient's health. In John's case, managing his metformin dose to avoid side effects, and at the same time managing his HbA1c for his hypertension, making sure his blood pressure is within the normal limits and he doesn't suffer from overdosing or um, the side effects of lisinopril and also other electrolyte and vitamin deficiencies secondary to chronic PPI use. Very true. Now let's keep this case moving as we go and see this patient for examination. Before seeing the patient, you review his vital signs and note that he has a mild tachycardia to 105 BPM, and his weight is 67 kilograms. On general inspection, he's alert and oriented. As he walks to shake your hand, you note that his gait is slowed, and you also note that the whites of his eyes have a yellow tinge. On neck examination, you find that he has palpable cervical lymphadenopathy, but a normal thyroid. His cardiac and respiratory examination are normal, but his abdomen examination is notable for massive splenomegaly. You also find that his legs are swollen on both sides. The rest of his examination is normal. So the examination findings that stand out initially are that he seems a little bit tachycardic at a heart rate of 105 and a little bit tachypneic with a respiratory rate of 23. I guess the concerning other features are the jaundice and the abdominal findings. So massive splenomegaly with pitting edema bilaterally in the legs. Hmm, so clearly this is going to be a challenging consult. We asked Amber if she has any advice on dealing with this, and specifically issues around time management, and how to manage appointments going over time, particularly in a GP setting. Of course, these skills are applicable pretty much everywhere where patients might have to wait a while to be seen 
or where their appointments might go over time. Happens very often in the emergency department, can happen on the wards, and it can be very frustrating for patients and clinicians. Realistically, this is going to throw your day out a little bit, and that's okay. And ideally, the way that you structure your day should be that you expect the unexpected and that there will be consults that take longer, um, and that's okay. And recognising this patient needs your time now, and this is not something that can be deferred to a subsequent consultation. So often in general practice, we talk about getting the list out of the patient early, finding out what their priorities are, and then working out what you can tackle today uh, and deferring other things to a subsequent consult if there's too much content for today. This is not something that can be deferred. And yes, this will make you run late, but that's okay. Usually if um, you have a good relationship with your patients and you can thank them for waiting, they will also know that if they waited today when they really need to be seen and they need the time, they'll get that time. John's investigations are the following. His ECG shows a sinus tachycardia with a rate of 110. His urine dipstick shows no signs of infection. His FBE shows pancytopenia. His HB, white cell, platelets, neutrophils, and lymphocytes are all low. His reticulocytes are high. His coagulation is abnormal with an elevated INR and normal PT, APTT, fibrinogen, and thrombin time. His UEC is grossly normal with a normal GFR, creatinine, however an elevated anion gap. His LFTs are deranged with a deranged AST, GGT, ALP, and a normal ALT albumin protein. And finally, an elevated bilirubin. His LDH is high, his lactate is high, his CRP is high, and his infection markers, including HIV, HCV, EBV, and CMV serology, are all normal. In terms of imaging, John was CT'd from head to pelvis. This investigation confirmed his hepatosplenomegaly and also identified pelvic, abdominal, and cervical lymphadenopathy. So this gentleman has a number of biochemical abnormalities that have arisen. Uh, he is pancytopenic. He's got an elevated INR and he has deranged LFTs, a very elevated LDH, a high lactate. Interestingly, in general practice, we rarely get a lactate. Um, it's... I think it's something to do with the way blood is collected in the community before it goes to the lab. It's not something we often have access to. He has a mildly elevated CRP and some serology consistent with past exposure to CMV and EBV, which would be very normal to see. This is certainly a very unwell gentleman who, who probably needs hospital admission at this point based on these findings. We asked Amber which investigation was most critical in her decision-making about this patient's need for admission. Probably the haemoglobin at 62. Um, he's symptomatic of this anemia uh, in that he's fatigued, he's breathless on exertion, and it probably is an acute anemia. Hopefully we've got some history of um, previous bloods demonstrating that he had a normal haemoglobin. But regardless, you would have to assume this is an acute anemia and... I guess, so we're suspecting bone marrow failure in that we've got pancytopenia. However, 
the other possible cause of that would be an acute bleed somewhere. And from a safety perspective, that's what would make me send him to hospital today. Um, in terms of the logistics, I would be asking the patient where they want to go in terms of hospital, whether they want private or public care, and perhaps not in this context, but if they are appropriate for a private admission under their treating specialist that's already known to them, that's a really good way of avoiding an ED presentation, um, if that's not necessary in other ways. Um, but this gentleman sounds like he needs an ED workup rather than a ward-directed meet. And then establishing how he's going to get to hospital. So he probably shouldn't be driving. <laughs> yes, he was driving his truck yesterday. Today, should he drive himself to hospital with a hemoglobin of 62? No. <laughs> he probably thinks he should. <laughs> um, and he's probably also upset, doesn't really understand what's happening, and is fairly emotional about all of this. So trying to communicate that perhaps his partner could take him um, whether or not he needs an ambulance transfer, really hard to know. The reality is people in our society often wait longer for an ambulance than they do for an Uber. So if he is not actively bleeding, I probably think he could go in an Uber to hospital. That would be fine. Um, and, and then establishing how you're going to communicate these results to the emergency department and whether that's a letter or a phone call, I guess, depends on um, whether you can adequately convey it in a letter um, and whether you, the type of relationship you have with your local emergency department, whether they prefer a call, knowing that when you call, you're probably not talking to the person that's then subsequently going to be looking after your patient. Mm -hmm. Like, how would you go about organising his transfer to the hospital? Hmm. So I guess part of it relates to how would we find out about these results. Uh, private laboratories in the community have a threshold by which they will send through urgent results, uh, and at which point they will call you with an urgent result. Um, unfortunately, sometimes things like this sit in a fax or a folder or an online email somewhere and don't get communicated directly to a doctor, which is a problem with the healthcare system and the way we communicate. These results really should be coming to attention as soon as they're uh, available. Uh, if it's during the daytime, hopefully you'll see them and you'll be able to coordinate this. Overnight urgent results like this should really be run through to the referring clinician. Um, but that can be a bit tricky if you're at home and you don't have access to the software and um, you're not quite sure really what's happening. But there's certainly enough there that you could say, okay, this patient needs to go to hospital. So your next step is actually to contact the patient um, because they may not be sitting in front of you with these results and to explain to them in a comforting fashion without alarming them, but that their results are such they need to go to hospital. And that can be quite difficult explaining that on the phone. If you can get them in, that's helpful, but they're going to want to know on the phone why you're calling them and why you want them to come in today anyway. So you kind of need to be okay about having that discussion. And you probably even can prompt that in your initial consultation. So when you're ordering requests, I often say to my patients, um, come back in a week for the results and we'll look at them. Any urgent results, I will call you. So they know that if they get a phone call from me, it's probably regarding some results we need to action today. Mm. So always providing written um, copies of results and often giving the patient a copy of the results separate to that can be a good way of preventing them getting lost. Um, particularly with things like scans that might have been done at external radiology providers that after 5pm can no longer 
send a copy through. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have had that frustration in ED of a patient's been sent in with scan findings, but they don't have their scan and they don't, you can't call because it's after 5 p.m. So if you can provide the patient with a, at least a copy of the report, that's probably going to be helpful. Do you have any tips on writing that referral letter? Because we get a lot of referral mm. letters, as I'm sure you know, in, in, in the ED, and some of them are great and some of them are not so great. Yes, I'm sure you get a lot of letters that say, please do the needful, and then nothing else written. Um, I think what I try to communicate is a couple of lines about what the patient has initially come in with, and then where they've had tests or scans, so even writing pathology through Melbourne Pathology or scan at X radiology provider, um, and attaching copies, and then writing why you're sending them to ED. So I've, I never tell patients oh, you need to go to ED because you need a blood transfusion because that's not really my call to make about this patient. That's going to be the clinician in emergency making that call about whether this patient needs to have blood. Um, And having been on the other side of it, it's really hard when someone comes in expecting a blood transfusion to then try and tell them they don't need it when that's what their doctor sent them in for. So I far prefer to phrase it to the patient, you need to go in because they need to assess whether or not you need a blood transfusion or because you need an assessment that can do X, Y, Z, or it needs to be discussed with the paediatric team, not you need to go and see the paediatrician at the hospital. Um, That's how I would prefer to phrase it, (laughs) Um, because often those things you think you're sending them in for is not actually going to happen, or it's going to happen in a different fashion, depending on how the healthcare system works in your area. We've spoken a lot about communication in our previous episodes of Stat Dose of EDU. And one of the most important lines of communication in all of medicine is the discharge summary. This is not only a concise summary of the reasons for a patient's admission as well as the interventions that they've had, but it's also one of the main ways that hospitals communicate with primary care physicians. Therefore, it's really important that discharge summaries are really well written, contain the requisite information, and don't contain unnecessary information. We asked Amber what she looks for in the discharge summaries that she reads as a GP. In a discharge summary, the things which help me are what you think the diagnosis was, um, the dates of any major procedure or operation. It may seem a little bit less useful, but it's really useful later down the track. Um, And then how do I contact to get any outstanding results? Um, that I've been asked to follow up. So having things like a discharge summary that automatically tells me that a line to get pathology results saves me time. And so it makes it more likely that the patient will actually get those results. Mm-hmm. On a practical point, uh, I've had like, so in my discharge summaries when I've written them, I generally like attach like, you know, a basic biochemical panel or, you know, like kind of regardless of whether it's even like, relevant or not you know what i mean to the patient's presentation but i kind of do it because like i you know it might be like i'm trying to signify in my mind that oh you know this is me showing you that the patient is not like disastrously anemic or hypometremic on discharge you know what i mean yep um so like and i was wondering like as a gp like are there any parts of discharge summaries where you just kind of like skip you know (laughs) Like, what, what can I do to save me some time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think if it's normal and you want to just write that it was normal, that's fine. Yeah. Um, 
So if you just want to write bloods, including X, Y, Z is normal. I'm okay about that. I don't need to see each individual result. Um, and equally, I probably don't need a blow by blow description of each individual day in the hospital. So you can definitely save yourself time there. Um, if you can write a couple of lines of presented with community acquired pneumonia, treated with IV benzoyl penicillin, discharge home when no longer requiring oxygen, outstanding follow-up of repeat chest x-ray in six weeks. That's all I need. Um, yeah, I think the things which is really important to communicate in a discharge summary is if the patient's been given a major diagnosis, is the patient aware? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and who will be taking that next step? So if they've been given a cancer diagnosis, when are they seeing the oncologist? Are they being discharged back to general practice care? And what kind of follow-up is arranged mm-hmm. um, is probably the critical stuff. And ensuring that nothing appears in a discharge summary the patient doesn't already know because patients often get a copy of them and can come in quite upset. And it's okay to write in medical language in a discharge summary. That's fine. That's It's a medical communication tool. I don't think we're yet at the point that it has to be fully layperson terminology, although I have heard that argument made. Um, but please don't spend hours and hours on each little detail. Your time is too valuable for that. What are some of your pet peeves from hospitals? <laughs> <laughs> I think a discharge summary that comes six weeks later is not very helpful. <laughs> and I've been there as the intern and the resident doing discharge summaries for, for months ago, and I recognise it's not easy. But it's not a very useful document at that point. What's my other pet peeve? Oh, my other pet peeve would be if I send somebody in with a query ectopic, please don't send them home with a discharge summary saying query ectopic. <laughs> because I did have that. I sent a patient to ED saying query ectopic pregnancy and they sent her home saying query ectopic pregnancy ultrasound tomorrow. And we did the ultrasound and she did have an ectopic pregnancy. So I sent her back saying definitely has ectopic pregnancy. Please manage. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right. Look, in general, our emergency department colleagues are doing a great job. I don't have, I don't have too many issues. Um, but yeah, please don't send a query ectopic home. Coming back to the case, we've established that John needs urgent review in hospital. And dear listeners, now we invite you to have a think of how you would broach this conversation with John. And in a few moments, we'll hear what Amber has to say to John, i.e. Christian Chenet. John, this is Dr. Amber calling from our clinic. How are you doing today? Thanks for calling Dr. Amber. I'm feeling okay. What what are you calling about? I'm just calling about some of those results from the blood tests. I wondered if you were somewhere quiet that you're happy to have the chat now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Is there something bad? Well, before I give you results, I always double check. Could you tell me your date of birth to make sure I'm looking at the right results, please? Yeah, sure. I'm 58 years old. Great. So, John, there were some unexpected results on the blood tests that unfortunately made me worried about your health today. I'm going to summarize them for you in as clear way as I can, but basically your blood tests show that you have very low red blood cells and white blood cells. Right. What does that all mean? Hmm. So it means I'm concerned about what's causing those, and it probably means that you're at increased risk of bleeding and feeling unwell at home. Okay. Okay. Right. So what what do I got to do now? Hmm. So there were some other abnormal blood tests as well that show that your liver is not working very well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. 
And I think most of this relates to the problems that you've been having with the tummy pain and feeling tired all the time. Right, right, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm getting a little worried. Mm. <laughs> Sounds like I'm not doing too good. Well, I think it's important that we try and work out some more detail around what's been causing these. And I think the safest place for you with these results is probably that you need to be in hospital right now. That mm. might come as a bit of a shock to you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, all right. Um, how, should I, how should I get there? Yeah, so I'm going to try and give you all the information and I'm going to write it all down for you. But I wondered if maybe your partner might be able to drive you to your local hospital. Oh, uh, yeah, I'll give her a call. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And she might have some more questions too. And if you guys want to have a bit of a chat to each other and then call me back, that can often be a really helpful way of breaking these into manageable chunks of to understand. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Um, Doc, is there any, like, reason that, you know, this is happening? Well, I suspect there probably is a reason. I think it's all related. Um, it certainly is something that you need to have a scan to try and work out. I think you need to have a scan of your tummy and hopefully you'll be able to have that in hospital mm-hmm. and that might give us more information as to why this is happening. Okay, right, yeah. All right, so I'll call my, call my wife and see if she can pick me up from work. Anything else I should do? Um, I think if you, if you decide not to go to hospital, so some people even after advice decide not to do that, could you give me a call back as well? Yep, for sure. I'm going to go to hospital though. Great. That sounds like a really good plan. I'm going to send you all the details and also to the hospital directly. All right. Thanks very much, Dr. Amber. No worries. Thanks, John. Hopefully we'll speak to you once you're out of hospital. Thank you. Chat later. So at the end of the phone consultation, you mentioned that some patients don't go to the hospital despite the advice and you asked them to call me back. What is like your thought process and what happens if they don't and they call you back, what would you do? Mm. So my first step is to try and understand what it is that's causing the hesitation about uh, going to hospital. And that might be financial. Uh, So unfortunately we live in a country whereby healthcare is not always free and accessible. Um, So that would be something to ask about. The other thing to consider would be patients' previous experiences in hospitals whether that's with their own health or a family member's health, and to consider how that's now affecting them and maybe preventing them from accessing care and talking about practical ways to make that more uh, achievable for them. The third thing would be ensuring that they truly understand what your concerns are. So they might call back and say, oh, doc, I actually feel okay, so I don't think I need to go to hospital. And then that's the time that you would delve more into the explanation of what the risks of not going to hospital would be and ensuring that they really understand that. Uh, And if they decide not to go to hospital, well, that's okay. But then that means I need to do some more things. So it's giving me the opportunity to carry on with their care um, and to say, okay, if you don't feel like you need to go to hospital today and you're comfortable with that risk that we've discussed, could you come and see me tomorrow so we can organize that scan for you? And if in the meantime, you end up having some bleeding from your bowel or you feel worse overnight, you know that you need to go to hospital before then. So kind of that safety netting, which I don't think you need to explain fully to the patient if they're going to go. Mm. Um, It's really if if they decide that that's not the path they want to take at the moment. Mm. All right, folks, John's on his way to the ED. Quick, you better call the ED admitting officer to make sure they're ready to receive John. So... 
Think about what you want to tell them. What do you think is the most important pieces for you to accentuate in your handover? Then we'll hear how Amber approached handing over John's case to the ED admitting officer so that you can compare and contrast. Hi there, my name's Amber. I'm a GP. I'm just looking for the EDAO, please. That's me. Great. I just wanted to discuss a patient that I'm referring in for review in your emergency department this afternoon. Is now the right time to discuss this? Yep, absolutely. Go ahead. So this unfortunate gentleman is a 58-year-old truck driver who presented with a number of symptoms including fatigue, abdominal pain, uh, jaundice and shortness of breath on exertion. He had splenomegaly on examination and pitting edema. His bloods show pancytopenia with a hemoglobin of 62, um, white cells of 2 and platelets of 59. He had deranged liver function and mildly elevated INR of 1.3. His CT of the neck, abdomen and pelvis has demonstrated widespread lymphadenopathy. Um, so throughout the uh, neck and the paraaortic nodes and inguinal nodes with hepatomegaly and splenomegaly. I'm concerned this gentleman has a lymphoma and I think he needs hospital admission for further investigation and stabilisation. Is there any other information you think you would need for the referral right now? Nope, that sounds like the right course of action. Send him on down. Great. Would you like me to fax over the results as well? That would be fantastic. Thank you very much. Fantastic. He will be arriving by private car shortly. Um, Thanks for your care. Thank you. All right, Wai Chung, what have we learned? Well, first of all, I've learned from a primary care practice perspective, there are always means to optimize a patient's care from a holistic point of view, despite the fact that a patient might not be presenting with the question that you have in mind. I've also learned to keep my eyes and ears open for alarm symptoms, whether that be weight loss, B symptoms such as fatigue, fevers, and of course, jaundice, especially in a patient who has been losing weight and has other symptoms. And finally, from a harm reduction perspective, if a patient is refusing what we see as optimum care, there are always other avenues to provide meaningful care to minimize their risk for further harm. Thank you, Amber, for joining us. We learned a lot and laughed a lot, and we hope you'll be back for another stat dose of EDU.